Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. This week, the story is about a visual world, largely first brought to life by a production designer named John Barry, who cut his teeth uh, in the biz working with legends like Liz Taylor, on Cleopatra, Clint Eastwood movies, before being hired by Stanley Kubrick to run the set design for A Clockwork Orange. And shortly after that, he does The Little Prince, uh, Superman, and then Star Wars A New Hope, for which he won the Academy Award for Art Direction. He set a practical but but realistic visual tone that, of course, has been repurposed and adapted and built upon in every successful installment of the franchise subsequently. But it was only two weeks into work on Empire Strikes Back when John Barry collapsed and died at the age of 44. Uh, this week, we're counting down our top six favorite sets and sceneries in all of Star Wars. Ross, how important is this visual element in establishing what Star Wars feels like and, and, and what it means to fans? It's huge. And it's something that's really interesting for for us specifically. Like we grew up with an original six almost. And that is very different from the way most people have, have, have viewed Star Wars. And there is a very big aesthetic shift between the original trilogy and the prequels. But the way that I'm able to view the galaxy as one in a whole uh, really allows that to make a lot of sense for me. And then thus, Star Wars does have this very dynamic but very clear uh, visual presence. You're able to tell, okay, no, that is clearly Star Wars. And whether that is a planet where the green, where like the ground is blue and there's gigantic mushrooms, or whether it's a geometric shaped hallway inside of a starship, it doesn't matter. Both have such a clear Star Wars feel to them or whether it's a desert world or a snowy world, but they you can still tell the difference between, okay, this is shot in a Star Warsy way using the actual world around you, uh, but with different kinds of modifications. Uh, and then also ones that are a little bit more grounded in reality. And so there are some certain worlds in Star Wars that maybe don't work and some certain set designs that don't work, but for the most part, uh, Star Wars has, sh has shown such a broad range that it allows for a lot of creativity in how you're going to set a scene. And the scene design is usually just very reflective of what you're trying to show in that scene. It's, it's very metaphorical, the, the scenery around you. And that is what is consistent within Star Wars as opposed to having a consistent, always tone per se. Yeah, and I really wanted to touch on, in that intro, I wanted to touch on, uh, of course, John Barry's commitment to the practical effects that kind of make Star Wars initially iconic. Uh, and part of that's budgetary, but the the budget or the lack thereof back in 76 allows for them to get creative in ways that almost like the big studio movies are never painted into that corner anymore, certainly not Disney and Star Wars. They have all the money they could ever need, and, and they have creativity on their side as well. But just innovatively, is that a word? Uh, Star Wars totally broke new ground. Although I think, and I haven't seen A Clockwork Orange, but I suspect that's probably a good training ground for something so literally out of this world as is Star Wars. Yeah. And it really is, it's, it's so out of this world, but it's also grounded a little bit in reality. Yes, it's a twin sunset, but it's still a sunset. And that's kind of, the, and it's, it may be Luke Skywalker, like moisture farmer, but it's still Luke Skywalker or better yet. It's still Luke, the farmer. Right. Uh, and so it's, it, it really, it, it's that beautiful blend of, 
you only have to suspend disbelief on 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 one key element, and it is a very fantastical thing that you're suspending disbelief on, which is uh, a wonderful thing. But then it allows you to be kind of vicariously part of the story, and that's of course what's so wonderful about Star Wars and that lived-in galaxy that is such a a great way to describe uh, the way we feel uh, when we enter a New Hope. Three uh, PO having the silver leg is a great example of that. It's just it's something that a lot of people don't notice for such a long time because it's 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 just inherently grungy, and that feels right because it just it fit it fits within the the scene design. It's a great example. I had a C3PO action figure as a kid and I I don't know that it was specifically from any particular Star Wars, uh, but I think it was probably an original trilogy action figure and he definitely did not have a silver leg. And so I don't know no. if that's just like an oversight on the toy company, uh, although a lot of involvement uh, from Lucasfilm in the toy company and so that seems kind of unlikely, but I guess it's just it's not, not considered entirely. like it's not considered like a really critical detail of the character, I guess. No, exactly. And it's also, it's tarnished as well. And it's not, it's only, I think, silver from the, the knee down. Uh, and so with that in mind, like even like a Lego 3PO, 3PO, Lego 3PO has always just had right. legs that match. And it, it, it's fine. It, it, it's, it's, it's not like the, the red arm in The Force Awakens that's so in your face, Mr. Solo. Okay, so. Uh, All if... right, well, we can dive right into. Uh... Yeah. Without further ado, I think yeah. you're going to go first. This is your sixth favorite. We don't need to waste a lot of time discussing what we think sets or scene pieces are. No. Like, I mean, obviously that's pretty clear, but like we're going to have different interpretations like always. What is your sixth favorite Star Wars set or scenery? Uh, the uh, Number six for me would be uh, Topoka City. And so that would be where the cloners on Kamino live and uh, create their entire Django Fett army. And it is such an interesting... And very, it, it, it's such a, a polarizing place. It's this harsh environment with this incredibly like vile weather around it. And it's this rough sea, but it is like built on stilts and it's stark white inside and so incredibly clean. And you have these intimidating, tall, but thin uh, Kaminoans. And then you have... Uh, this kind of like library with just clones upon clones and the the quarters that Django Fett has where it has the sliding door. It's just so clean. It is what you imagine you, when you picture even Tatooine and the way that um, Mos Eisley is. The, the entire area where the doors are set up, there is a unique Star Wars feel to it. And you can see an evolution of almost like the most sci-fi uh, brand new innovative way that the Kaminoans have designed it to almost like the grungier uh, over time development of what it would become in the rest of the galaxy to what we're super familiar with. And because it's this area that's not really known and Obi-Wan's, it's a mystery. Uh, so the fact that it is so clean and seems so well put together with like a strong political system, it, it's just, it's got mystery wrapped up around the atmosphere and the scene that you're in. And Obi-Wan doesn't want, know what's going on and we don't know what's going on. It's just, it's a really cool environment. And we visit it back in the Clone Wars. We're going to, I can guarantee you we'll get more in the Bad Batch. Uh, I think this was a home run in Attack of the Clones. I think it's also just really clever uh, it's it's just good uh, story making that they've decided, well, this is a culture that 
their main purpose in the story is is that they are working on this innovative technology and it's secretive. So we got to find some way to sequester them in a corner of the galaxy we're not familiar with. And what better place to do that than in a place where for as, as much as we know, there is no organic living space. And so like, I actually think in a way it's entirely different from Mos Eisley because you look at the structures and, and the buildings that the city are made of and you can see how it's organic. You can see that Tatooine, um, even Naboo, which looks a little bit more like earth frankly but like it's it's built of the earth with varying degrees of crudeness and sophistication where the, the sophistication of this city is completely uh otherworldly because it's it's completely unorganic it's it's built of their technology and their advancement now uh throw in the fact that it's just like this big ocean and like you said it's quite ominous i love that it's raining when we're outside uh and then the interior of the city is really cool it's something i didn't put on my list uh, but I did list it uh, in my honorable mentions is Gungan City for similar reasons. It's just like, it, how, how did an imagination come up with this? It's totally otherworldly. Yeah, Odaganga is uh, like a, a prime honorable mention for me. I had that one as a, as a just that's a really phenomenal uh, set design. I think that the I think the Camino and is similar but just done to an even maybe more creative way. And the Kaminoans are way cooler than the Gungans. So it's, although Tarples is pretty great, but it just, in, in general, I, I think it's, it's done extremely well. And like you said, it's very tech driven, but it just, it shows such a, a range for the galaxy. It's like, it's, it's the, the height of heights. Um, but it's, like you said, it's also so secretive uh, and it's a population that has done this to survive. That's the, something that in like Kaminoans needed to learn how to clone to survive as a population. So. And there's an, something incredibly fluorescent about the interior of it, which I think is it is kind of classic sci-fi. Uh, like you're in the alien base now, you wake up underneath like a big spotlight and you're like, what are you poking in me? Like it, they're not specifically doing that to Obi-Wan, but like it's like you said, they're there's something kind of eerie about this place. And I think they totally nail it. Very good. Yeah. So my sixth favorite is a little bit more classic than that. Uh, my sixth favorite is the trash compactor. Uh, this is a scene that we we talked about last week briefly. It hasn't been discussed on this podcast too, too much, at least not since we were doing our first season of the podcast. Uh, mainly, I like though. it because it's, it's so singular. It never really is revisited so effectively. Um, it does stand out as one of the most iconic original Star Wars scenes, obviously. It's like most often referenced pop culturally. And the tone of like a potentially dangerous creature lurking in the darkness, that's kind of a franchise staple. We've kind of touched on that mm -hmm. a little bit, but that's not even really what makes this scene work so well. It's it's seeing your heroes like narrowly avoid getting squashed in this constricting metal room. It kind of changes your brain, I think, when you see this as a kid. Like suddenly you become aware that like, what if rooms could enclose? How terrifying that would be. Yeah. Um, and the the water and the the foam cheap rubber it's got this like charming video oh where could he be there's like a real charming cheapness to that scene in terms of practical uh, design again it's so iconic and so I had to I had to acknowledge the trash compactor great choice never would have thought to put it on my list uh, I think I wasn't thinking that. Uh, granular I, I when I would have think of something so imperial I didn't uh, I didn't really. Uh, I never could bear it, like barrow it down to something so specific as the trash compactor like that. And there are a couple other ones, uh, but no, I think that's a fantastic one. I love this scene. 
Uh, you're right. It's something that's so Star Wars, but almost really hasn't been replicated or even revisited in the same possible way. I do want another great creature from the Black Lagoon moment. Yeah. And I think that we haven't had one since then. And I think that we are, we're long overdue uh, for, for one of those kind of key moments with like maybe with like something else going on in, in a similar kind of capacity to like um, obviously the walls closing in. Well, uh, and I think it was kind of cool with uh, season with episode um, 11 or chapter 11 of Mando when there was that, when they were on the Corrin ship and um, like Din was in the water, but, Grogu was in the in the cage inside the sea monster, and there was, it was it was similar kind of stakes, but not quite the same. But definitely stake wise, gave me a similar sort of vibe. No, and I think we've had other similar creature from the Black Lagoon uh, installments where they've tried to do it, just not. It hasn't been replicated so effectively, and I think the difference is hmm. that in this case, in the trash compactor, it's like the fact that there's like something slithering by Luke's leg. It's not even the primary concern of the scene. It just happens to be like making things more complicated. But there's the situation with the weird like, you'd know what they're called and you should tell me what they're called. The weird like bats where they have to like actually exit the Falcon to figure out what they are. I think it's in... That's that's in Empire. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. It's like there are later things in Star Wars where and there's like, um, there's always a bigger fish. Other cases where there happens to be a monster emerging from the darkness but usually it's the main threat of the moment and not like yeah. the fact that walls are closing in and uh, do you know exactly how they achieved that uh, in terms of special effects is it just camera angles do they have a hydraulic wall that's on like a track or anything i don't know no um are you i'm guessing it was probably yeah. some form of hydraulic track that would be my guess yeah maybe what are the name of those bat creatures do you know um Oh, the ones uh, inside the Exegorth. Um, I'm blanking in a really bad way. I've had a couple glasses of wine. Um, <laughs> I can picture. Oh them. my god, this is this is killing me. I can picture this them to awful. the extent that that you're able to picture them at all because they deliberately don't really show them directly. But um, it'll come to you later on. Uh, this is your number five, your fifth favorite scene uh, or set design in Star Wars. My number five is Bright Tree Village. Oh, nice! Uh, absolutely adore Bright Tree Village. Um, it's such a cool with like the bridges that are connecting these little huts and the way that they zoom out. It, it's a really, really phenomenal, um, design for everything. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's happy go lucky. Um, but also we know that the Ewoks are at the same time insane. They try and eat our, our heroes at the start. And then there's a bunch of like stormtrooper head bongos going throughout it's really uh, a cool, cool design. And just Endor in general is cool, but it's still a little Earth-like. But the way that they have these elevated kind of village area and, and it's the the happy end of everything, uh, I think it's just it's a, it's a really cool set design. And I've always wanted to see uh, more things happen on a set like that. Yeah, and I think it also really speaks to the the lover of tree forts in just about any kid i mean a lot has been said about yeah. how about how the ewoks are brought in to appease the really younger uh child viewers and obviously george has always had uh an inclination towards uh, making the young kid viewers uh enjoy themselves as well and ewoks are are a path towards that and i mean like you just look at this network of of little paths and pedways and it's 
pretty sweet. Like, it's pretty cool. Um, I don't really have a whole lot more to say about it because it is a forest, and I think they use, what is it, the Redwoods in San Francisco or something to create, exactly what they to use, create yeah. Endor. Uh, and, I mean... It looks it looks so cool. There's a scene in in Parks and Recreation where they find themselves in those woods, and and Adam Scott's character is like really psyched because he's a bit of a Star Wars nerd. And when you oh, I see don't remember them, that episode, yeah, it's later in the series. Um, but when when you see them, you're like, oh, it is Endor. I, I never realized it before, but like I actually recognize the redwoods from Return of the Jedi, not from like nature. <laughs> I wonder if you're like if you would walk in that park as a citizen of San Francisco and feel that way, or if it's just if it's or if everybody feels that way they're just so intrinsically attached the aesthetic of those trees well that was a big thing for uh chapter um was it chapter 15 or chapter 14 of this past season i don't uh, remember mando i don't remember uh the tragedy whichever one that was uh robert rodriguez did yeah um and so that was one that a lot of people because it's it's just in it's it's in california it's the only it was the only thing in mando that was not shot on the volume and uh, a bunch of people drove out there I, people, I, people had shots from it they, they thought it was a fan film if i can make you feel any better i'm not sure there is a canonical name for these space slugs that appear in the exegorth I, i'm looking it up no i'm a hundred i'm a i'm a hundred percent sure there is i'm a hundred percent sure there is and it is i am so angry with myself uh, the only reason why I can't get this is because like, I can't get the word moth out of my fucking mind. Oh. And it's driving me nuts. Well, um, I'm, but I'm, no, no, they're 100% as a name. Uh, are they called Sayo? Nope. Okay, well, uh, let me distract you. Speaking of creepy crawlies, my fifth favorite uh, set or scenery is the Dagobah Swamp. Um, I actually think we're overall a little bit deprived of, of more Dagobah in Star Wars. I guess that's mm -hmm. intentional. Uh, the entire exposure we get really feels very interior. It feels like it was filmed on a soundstage, which it, it probably was. Um, and I think that that represents Yoda as well, uh, intentionally. The, the size of him personally, uh, the isolation in which he lives, it's supposed to feel insular and small. But purely like the aesthetic of the Dagobah Swamp, where Luke and R2 uh, land, it, it, it's just, it's phenomenally... Infidious. It, well, it is amphibious, but it's also um, curious without being kind of haunting. Like you're, you're never actually like nervous for what might happen here, but you're like, it's a little wonderlandy in a in a grungy kind of way. But it serves as the stage for Minox. Uh, Minox, there you go. You did it. I knew you'd do it. God. It was an M. It was an M word. Well, that was my problem, though. I couldn't get off of it. I'm still so deeply embarrassed, though. I'm still so that is I'm annoyed with myself, but still, I'm glad I got it. Jesus Christ. May I continue? Okay. I'm sorry. That's right. Uh, <laughs> of course, the Dagobah Swamp is where the iconic uh, raising of the X-Wing fighter uh, happens. Um, again, practical movie making. I guess I'm going to be hung up on like how they actually like do the bells and whistles of Star Wars a lot when we talk about uh, this conversation tonight. Uh, and by the way, like Yoda is, is a practical effect in his original form. He's a Muppet. Muppets and their world, and now I'm talking about like Kermit and Fozzie, uh, they feel 100% real. They're like celebrities themselves because, practically speaking, they are. And Dagobah is that too. It feels very much like a real world kind of place. And and yet mystical things can happen there. And so I like the, I like the wonder and the promise of Dagobah. Yeah, Dagobah is, it's dark, but at the same time, it's filled with so much life. Everything is creepy and crawling and so it's alive and that's very much with the force and so it's 
it, it, it's a dark side nexus and uh, Octo is, is a light side nexus um, or even just a force nexus, I guess, more likely. Um, but it, it's, it, it's interesting the similarities as well as to where Luke hides himself and where uh, Yoda hides himself. But it's, it's an important part. It's a place for, for Luke to learn. Um, is there a specific spot on Dagobah that you, uh, you like, whether it was like Yoda's hut or like the dark side cave or like right as Luke is exiting like the X-Wing and he's like, just gotten to like the swamp's shore. I do, I do namely mean the swamp and like where the X-Wing situation happens, like really our initial, yeah. um, Dagobah. Although now that you mentioned Yoda's hut, like, sure, it kind of looks like a moldy version of Bag End. Like it's, it's just this yeah. little, little dumpy thing and then when the light is on in the window and of course i mean i like it all i think it's anytime you're on dagobah you're happy because you're getting you're getting some classic yoda and and uh yeah i i i like all of it but in particular the swamp yeah no i think that is uh that's a great choice okay your turn number four already uh yeah i'm moving at a good pace okay. uh my number four would be the death stars two observatory tower uh throne room of emperor palpatine nice uh observatory tower i should say uh and this is the the final battle between uh anakin slash vader luke and palpatine and it is uh, it has a lot of the star wars uh elite elements it's got pits that uh, are bottomless uh with a bunch of technology and reactors at the bottom of them uh it's barren but also has scaffolding at the same time it's ominous but it has also these giant windows it's uh an observatory so it's a place of of knowledge it's like it's almost like it's taking place in a like a library but also like the 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 king's office it's it's a very weird place but because the emperor is so inherently evil it still feels like such an evil place, mm. but you have these uh, observatory terminals and you have Luke being able to kind of hide in the shadows and the, the elevator that brings them up. It, it's just a very, very cool uh, set design and ultimately for one of the greatest moments in Star Wars. And um, it, it definitely uh, holds its own to, to be the, this, the, the backdrop of said scene. I love it too. I never really thought about how strange it is that they've kind of departed Palpatine from the pomp and circumstance, like the glamour of having an office. And I, I guess he's got bigger fish to fry, but he, at the end of the day, is still pretty uh, egotistical, even as uh, <laughs> the emperor. And so it is kind of funny that like he has this kind of shut away office uh, without any uh, red carpets or, or um, you know, gold curtains or, or, or really a whole lot of, um, uh, I guess just like adornment that, that feeds his ego. You're right. It feels like a practical room, almost like, like a warehouse type room where like, you know, the, the mechanic would go to, to change the light bulb. Yeah. No, the, I think that's the big thing is that Palpatine has gotten to this point in his life where he has he he has the image that he projects to the galaxy but he almost doesn't really give a fuck about that anymore right he's conquered the the political world he's dissolved the senate he's done everything that he wants so he is completely in charge and now he's just so obsessed with finding sith lore and conquering that world that he is a little bit just more on the pragmatic side and he is less of a human and has installed figureheads and still projects himself in hollows, not looking like a shriveled old, like lurching man. Uh, he presents himself as 
the way Sheev looked before he got electrocuted. Uh, he presents himself that way in the hollows, even though he did still announce that he was disfigured by Mace Windu. And then after that, he was never really viewed in public again. Right. And so it, it allowed him to be like, he didn't need to show the pomp and circumstance because he had already just won. And so his pomp and circumstance was thing were things like the death star. And so it was more of, he got off on the intimidation as opposed to the 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 classiness of it he didn't even need to be classy he was too Just the power of he was it, too into being evil yeah i mean the death star is is a pretty big dick swing to be fair <laughs> it really is it's yeah. not anything other than ego uh, like yeah and and also putting the galaxy in its place that right. was the whole point it was right. just it was a giant fear-mongering mm-hmm. device will blow up the couple planets that cause this trouble and then there won't be any more planets to cause this trouble Period. True. We'll blow up Alderaan. We might have to do Chandrilla, maybe a couple other peaceful worlds, maybe Mon Cal, something like that. Nothing too big. Just a couple worlds. Jetta, we already tested the shit on that, so it's gone. Uh, yep. Maybe we'll uh, blow up Ilum, or maybe, you know, well, let's just harvest Ilum and build an even bigger weapon. We'll call it Star Killer Base. Ah, and it can't travel. Yeah, but it can shoot things across the entire galaxy and blow up entire systems. <laughs> So my fourth favorite uh, set, I guess it's a singular set, is Echo Base, man. I won't belabor this because I know we talked about uh, Hoth a lot lately, me in particular. Um, I don't have any hot takes on Hoth. We all like Hoth. Uh, in general, I think I think this planet, this entire first act of Empire Strikes Back, is a brilliant device for story progress and showing uh, galactic diversity because we've seen like a little bit of interplanetary stuff in the first movie, although actually very little when you actually think about it. Um, Hoth stands to tell you ain't you ain't seen nothing yet. Check out how desolate and weird this place is. Uh, the construction of this huge and sophisticated rebel base kind of shows you that the good guys are maybe a little bit more elite and sophisticated than you realize in episode four. They're much more ragtag in episode four, and by now they're starting to get their shit together. Uh, still small, but a little bit more well-organized. Uh, and from a personal standpoint, I think all the tunnels, and the tunnels are my favorite part, they're what remind me of the tunnels we would dig in the big snow banks that we lived in a corner lot. And so the snow plow would take a huge street's worth of snow and dump it on the end of our, our uh, yard. And then we'd be able to dig these enormous tunnels in the snow. And those are some of my favorite childhood outdoor memories. And so playing in the snow as a Star Wars fan is, I mean, immediately then it becomes a game of Hoth. And so those tunnels in particular feels like really grassroots and it kind of takes me back to childhood. So Echo Base, man. Yeah, I'm so glad you're hitting a bunch of the ones that I don't have on my list, but want uh, that are like a huge honorable mentions. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's a phenomenal one. The the shape of the hallways, the the just the the rounded. Uh, this is a snow fort of it all. Yeah. Are, is fantastic. The giant ice garage where like the hangar that they're in when they have to close like the giant doors, and it's just it's fantastic. I absolutely love Echo Base and. Uh, like the like, it, it felt like, a, and they have like the computer lab almost. <laughs> it, totally. it, it just when I was relating to like the rooms, it was it it just seemed so logical and as if like if I had to design a base as a five year old, like I could design Echo Base. It's a little bat cavey in that way. 
Yeah, yeah. kind of, but not in a bad way at no, all. No. And it's, uh, I, I love Hoth, and I think it, uh, I'm sure we've mentioned many times before the affinity that we have for Hoth be, as, as Canadians because of the snow and, and just the general love that we have with that. Sure. But yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think this is this is a great one. The the entire atmosphere and the scenes that, and like you said before, like uh, the Gahan and Leia scenes that take place there, uh, like having like steamy scenes in a chilly environment. You gotta have that that nice contrast there. So, what can you tell me about Echo Base historically? Like it, it kind of presents itself as a bit of a pop up base, although it also seems like pretty supplanted by the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. It seems like they've got. They've got some roots here. So how long have our rebel heroes been there at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back? And how long have the rebels in general been on Hoth? Uh, and so at most, uh, I'm not exactly sure within the comics, but it's at most about a year. Uh, they've been oh, bouncing okay. around a bit. And uh, this is the one of the first ones that they've been able to find some, some good roots on. And uh, of course, it doesn't last, but they've been there longer than they've been anywhere else. Um, but they've been kind of bouncing around trying to find a good place to hide. And the Hoth system has made for uh, a good a good spot to hide. Uh, Luke and Vader have encountered one another. Uh, that's like they're like a lot of people don't like that. And I'm not a, I don't read a bunch of the comics, but a lot of people aren't a fan of the notion that Luke and Vader encounter one another before Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, that seems um, weird that they would keep that. It does from us. seem weird, but yeah. at this specific time, Vader is very gung ho about finding him because he wants to know who the pilot is who blew up the Death Star, um, because he also could tell he was strong in the Force. And so Boba Fett finds out that his name is Skywalker. That's mm -hmm. all you can find out. And of course, that's all Vader needs to hear. And so then Vader becomes deeply obsessed, and then they go on the real hunt. And at the start of Empire Strikes Back, Vader, it, like they say, oh yeah, it's probably nothing on Hoth. And Vader's like, nope, it, it's on, they're on Hoth and Skywalker is with them. And it's it, like, it's because of the force that they're able to, that they're caught there. And that's once again, Luke unknowingly exposing the rebellion. Like, I, I mean, I didn't, Endor. I didn't know that when they meet in Empire Strikes Back, that's not canonically their first meeting anymore. And I do hate that. I think that, yeah, yeah. That seems yeah, I'm not wrong. I'm not a huge fan of yeah. it. And it's it, it's not like it it's not a big meeting, but it's like I because I I'm I it was a while ago and I only read like the comic summaries to like get the general like gist of what a comic arc has occurred. I've read a couple of the comic arcs, but not many of them, just a couple of the Vader ones, a couple of the Kanan ones. Um, but it it was it was a little bit, it was kind of it wasn't like a full-on meeting. But it was maybe a little bit more than um, Luke screaming "No!" in A New Hope, and Vader seeing him across the room while he steps on Obi Wan's cloak confusedly. Right. But uh, I don't quite remember exactly what it was. It wasn't a whole lot. But then, of course, I'm looking here at um, my wall, and you have you you got me a couple of framed comics, and there's one that's like a really old one, uh, and it says "Star Wars in Mortal Combat." And uh, it's it's an early issue, and it takes place right after Empire Strikes Back. Sorry, right after A New Hope, and it's Luke facing Vader on the cover. So, uh, in Legends and in everything, they've always uh, inserted different sort of uh, things like that. But if you just watch the movies, you can view it however you like. Right, right. Okay, it's time for your top three. What's your third favorite uh, Star Wars set piece? Uh, my third favorite one was a tough one. I had to bump it down from two to three 
because it wasn't a it wasn't a solo set piece. It is, but it's it, it's one set design in two different films, and it's completely different. But I, I almost prefer it second instance, and it would be Vader's castle. And so I I really really wish in that they explored it more in Rise of Skywalker because I almost prefer that set design in the very opening scene. In my opinion, the first five minutes of Rise of Skywalker are the best of the the best minutes of the movie. I think it's absolutely bloody incredible. I just wish it was longer because it was yeah, it, it's, it's so sure. interesting that they're on Mustafar and that that is where he's found the Wayfinder. And it's in the ruins of Vader's castle and that Mustafar has regrown. And then when we see Vader's castle in Rogue One and we have the this it's built over top of where he fell and it's so menacing and cold but built on a lava planet and it has catacombs that have been explored through video games and it is deeply deeply lore driven mustafar is a very cool planet uh, in that regard and it has vader's kind of like vector rooms and whatnot it's it's so over the top yeah it's so science fictiony uh dracula's castle frankenstein's lair it is it's it's super villainous and extreme it is but worthy of darth vader to the most full extent and it is uh, a painful pathetic place um filled with sadness but i think it is so meaningful to star wars and was introduced so late into star wars and i think that's even so interesting the fact that its first appearance uh before vader's castle was even built is in Revenge of the Sith, and its first appearance is in Rogue One as a castle, and then its next appearance is in Rise of Skywalker as ruins, which ultimately is the one that I think is the most interesting. I think that that's just a really cool progression that can be tied with an important character um, that has also had, we've seen him from his his base level, his, his absolute nothing, just a child, to his fullest and most powerful, to his life in ruins. Okay, that's very interesting. I don't have a a, a relationship to uh, Vader's castle in particular. I guess I thought it was very cool. Obviously, I'm excited to see Vader when he appears in in Rogue One. And also, I mean, I love the whole Mustafar sequence. Uh, we've talked about that, you know, maybe more than anything. Uh, and in general, I'm kind of always a fan of the lava set piece. You know, I'm a fan of Mount Doom. I'm a fan of Goron City. Like, I, I, I just, I like that kind of aesthetic. And you're right, it's very super villainy. And why shouldn't the greatest supervillain of all time not have, like, uh, an essential supervillain palace castle? My only issue with it is that I, and you said it was introduced so late. I was able to go my entire life as a Star Wars fan without ever having a problem with Vader just living on the Death Star or in a Star Destroyer and just being frankly for the lack of a better word a workaholic because i think it actually kind of works really well with vader that he is without purpose if not to rule the empire and to be obsessively on the job so to speak and so while i think vader's castle is very cool part of me kind of struggles with the idea that he would even want a place to like put his slippers on and let his hair down it seems silly thing. it's the opposite of that for him okay it's the exact opposite. It's not a place for him to go and recharge and relax. It's a place for him to go and recharge his hatred. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a place for him to go and feel more pain. Like in a forced it's, way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I see. It is his fortress of solitude. It is a place. Darth Vader is a prisoner. And the the great line from Cassian, uh, for, sorry, from uh, Chirrut to Cassian that uh, uh, different people have uh, prisons. I yeah. sent you carry yours everywhere you go, Captain. Uh, and that's that is Darth Vader, one hundred percent. Darth Vader is in prison constantly, and when he's going to be alone and even like all he has is his thoughts to himself he doesn't have the job to distract him then all he gets to do is to torture himself constantly i see he gets to remind himself oh yeah you killed your wife hmm. and uh you killed your unborn child and you lost to your master who was jealous of you hmm. yeah he was jealous of you and so were all the other jedi but then you still lost, you pathetic loser, as he looks out the window as to where he burned and basically burned alive and should have died, but was only alive because he was just so bloody angry. And the dark side of the force was what keeps him alive. And so that's really the great psychology behind uh, Darth Vader's suit and how Vader's castle is just another version of his suit. It's like his, it's, a, it's a suit for his suit. Right. Almost. It's a place for him to go and, and really amp up the hatred um, and uh, just focus on, on hating himself a little bit more. I picture him like uh, writing angry poems in his diary and like blaring mm -hmm. welcome to the Black Parade and saying things like, it's not just a phase, dad. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you just like absolutely just scooping up sand and just like with the force and just destroying <laughs> or turning it into glass and being uh, like, ha, you are now useful to me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be such a funny Anakin, uh, like side characteristic if he repurposes glass. <laughs> he blows finally glass as a right. hobby. He finally learned to love sand. That's so funny. Yeah. Okay. okay so my, my third, I mean, it's maybe the most iconic it's definitely one of the most iconic sets in all of star wars and it's the millennium I, falcon cockpit uh, okay nice this is one of my honorable mentions not gonna appear on your list you're crazy so no and it's a phenomenal phenomenal one yeah. i'll let you talk about it first but it's just it was one that um i didn't i just it was not the first way i identified it even though it 100 percent is scene design it 100 percent is set design yeah it's just not the way I identified it. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay with not putting it in my list because it's just not how I initially viewed it. But of course, it's a phenomenal top one. Well, yes. And I and I did kind of have to think about it a little bit differently than the others because it's, it's not a set piece that so badly needs to evoke certain feelings or tones to propel the story. It just has to be cool because it's going to be in like most, most Star Wars movies forever. Uh, and you can do a lot, I think, with... Uh, with any fake cockpit of a fake aircraft to like dress it up and make it look realistic in a movie, especially a sci-fi movie, you can add like blinking colorful lights and switches and, and buttons or whatever. And the Falcon's got all of those, of course, in spades, but purely like superficially, just to, just to look at it and remove all of your like sentimentality. The pièce de résistance, I think of this design as this giant circular windshield. And the fact that the four uh, flight chairs, like those deck chairs, are uh, in this cylindrical appendage of the spaceship itself that kind of like reaches off the, the disc of the Falcon. And I think that design is just so, so creative. And so I love... I love the shape of it, and in particular, the nose of that window. Uh, and so other than than that, like, classic, because it does kind of have a bit of, a, like, a classic dash cam 
vibe. It's we're like, awesome. It's like a night rider kind of thing. Like we just have a, a camera on the dashboard of our car and we're going on a road trip, except it's a spaceship. Uh, other than that, it's not that innovative of a set, I guess. Um, but I, if you think about all that happens here, it's an absolute yeah. essential set piece for Star Wars. And, and uh, of course, I love it. Yeah, no, I love it too. And I think it's interesting. It doesn't have the downside of a dash cam when it's facing our heroes from the actual windshield itself mm -hmm. perspective because you're not seeing the world travel behind it like you would at the rearview mirror. That's so you're interesting. Seeing, and so I think that is one thing that really allows you to feel more immersed in that it's actually doing what it's doing because you're able to just shift things a little bit with the aesthetic of the camera and when like they're in the asteroid field, it's all bumping around and whatnot. And so it, you're not um, limited by the even shit shot now looks stupid when it's in a car most it can. of the time. Yeah. And so back then, I mean, like when you when you watch a Bond movie, anything shot in a car looks ridiculous. Brutal, and so yeah. it, it they really got away with not having to do that by not having rear view mirrors. No, but talking rear, rear windows. Talking about motion happening outside the windows, obviously in the Falcon more than anywhere else, although not yeah. exclusively, we have the design of hyperspace. And I don't know if we can attribute that to the same set designers, but what what a fascinating way they decided to make that look. And yeah. and it's just the visual of it is burned on your brain and now that is the only way you can depict light speed or or, or hyperspeed. Like incredibly good idea and it is kind of a part of the Falcon aesthetic, especially the cockpit in particular. It's not exclusive to the Falcon, but that's a big part of that's one of the cool things you get to see while you're there and it definitely contributes to your love of that set piece. Yeah, no, it is absolutely uh fantastic part of star wars and it, the fact that it's not part of the uh, the prequels feels weird but it's great that it's back for the sequels um but else at the same time like one ship shouldn't be in all of star wars and so it, it it's it's wonderful um you're but right but isn't it kind it of interesting feel like like right behind you like it says chewy we're home so yeah i never really thought about that before but and I agree that maybe it would be silly if it was in all of Star Wars, but considering how much fan service George wanted to involve in those prequels, isn't it interesting that he had it's, the it, had it, the it control not to put Sith. it in there? It, it is in Revenge of the Sith. I think it's in like a background shot, yeah. And yeah. that's why it's canonically inconsistent because it doesn't look like it does in Solo. It doesn't look pretty. It looks oh. like shit. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> that's so. That's fine, whatever. Yeah. Not going to get too hung up on that. Okay, it's your not turn. Like, it's not like there's only one of them. Oh, that's true. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, I never thought about that before. That'd yeah. be so weird if we there's met There's only one Falcon, Falcons. but there's more than one. Yeah, a Krillian, YT YTs, yeah. But now I want to see more, or do I? Other, I want to see other, other modded Falcons, what other people have done to their Falcons. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, your turn for number two, please. Uh, number two would be, and I think there's a chance it will be in your top two. Uh, and if not, I'm going to be kind of, kind of surprised. Uh, would be the Theed Reactor. Yes, that's my number Nibiru. two. Yep. Nice. Perfect. We can talk about it then together. Yep. Uh, and this is, and I actually, I, I'm confident I know your number one then. And it's going to be, it'll fit really well with my number one. Okay. Um, I, I could be wrong, but it'll fit well with my number one. Uh, but no, yes, this is it awesome awesome scene piece this is everything that is so star wars it's raw and it's uh it, it's unbalanced it's dangerous as hell it's inconvenient it's it's just like maul 
Oh, true. And yeah. uh, when you read the the novelizations and everything the companies uh, and like the Darth Plagueis novel, Maul intentionally leads them there. He, he waits for them because he wants to fight them there because he knows if it's two on one, this is the best way to get an easy separation. Right. And he gets rid of Obi-Wan for a good amount of time. Yeah, he controls of- the space in there for sure. Exactly. And because he's able to use just like brute force and the the use of a large pit is so Star Warsy. Mm. Uh, the fact that you have those uh, diff- the, the gateways of the the force fields, it's so cool. Uh, it was the kind of set design that we would just imagine was around us playing with broomsticks in the yard yeah. as kids. It was one of the coolest things about the Phantom Menace. Uh, and definitely was the co- one of the like was the coolest set design as a kid, and is just a really Star Warsy and fulfilling scene design uh, in a movie that has some visuals that are a little bit off. Uh, this is absolutely not one of them. No. And as we mentioned before, with Odagunga, that not one of them either. Uh, it's it's a movie with a lot of a lot of pluses and minuses, and this is another one of those amazing pluses. Phantom Menace is a a uh, technological masterpiece in a lot of ways. Uh, and this is contributing to that as well. Yeah, I think the key words you just used were as kids, because almost any Star Wars fan of a certain age would consider this among the very best for all the reasons cool. you just, just listed. Uh, and, but not just because of what happens here or because of the symbolism of Darth Maul or, or the story that's even taking place at this point. Um, because the set designers can't really be uh, credited with the music that really sells Duel of the Fates or or the fight choreography, which, of course, uh, helps to make the acrobatics, the, the victories and the tragedies that happen in this particular sequence. Uh, but this generator room, uh, it takes, like you said, the, the pit is there. This, this classic Star Wars interior, which is like a, a cavernous, uh, not unlike the Emperor's throne room, frankly, in Return of the Jedi, this like steel industrial space with this big daunting chasm uh, and it just kind of steps up that trope a million percent. Uh, and maybe some of this room is green screen. I suspect it probably is because that started to be implemented in in the prequels. I don't care. Uh, like you said, it it looks really, really good. The the platforms and the the the, the sheer size of this space is so big. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say this might be the most rewatchable scene in all of Star Wars because you can begin it at the beginning you don't need to see anything before or after and just like the full eight minutes of it or whatever is stupendous yeah it's extremely rewatchable yeah uh it cuts in with uh yippee uh and uh a few other things True. Like, oh let's try spinning that's a good trick but oh my god colin watching the behind the scenes gallery for mando season two yeah freaking dave filoni i lost it um they he literally says that like i forget what the circumstance is but they're talking about i think it's i think they're referring to flying as well and it's just like you know he could spin that's a good trick oh <laughs> i just i loved it <laughs> of course of course but it's yeah. great to hear like prequel memes used by the king of prequel era um, aside from, well, yeah, even including almost George Lucas. Well, he's, he's, he's smart because he's playing to his audience because prequel memes love Dave Filoni. Yeah, I mean, also rightfully. And they also, they had, it was a hilarious, uh, he and John Favreau had a kind of a McClunky conversation as well, which was funny. What's a McClunky uh, conversation? That means something? Do, do you not know what McClunky is? Uh, maybe you've told uh, me. So McClunky uh, was one of the, when 
George Lucas wanted to do 3D versions and like redo the um, all the movies and re-release them in the theaters. The original six, he was going he he, he re-edited all of the movies again. And there was almost no real adjustments, uh, but they've used these same cuts for the 4K versions put on Disney Plus. Oh. And so really one of the only major adjustments that was different because George Lucas had already, like he had made a couple edits to the rest of the trilogy, the like rest of the movies, even though they weren't released. He only did the 3D version of Phantom Menace. Um, and so at that point, there was just this random line where the last word Greedo says before dying is McClunky. Okay. And now that's Greedo's de- final word. And uh, they use McClunky in um, the post credit scene with Boba Fett and Bib Fortuna. I forget where, like, how it's exactly used. Oh, wow. Um, I, th- I think that's when they use it this season. But initially, they were going to use it as like a, like a, one of those... Like, I think Favreau mentioned it as like a, what if Din just like points his gun at his gun at someone and says McClunky and just shoots them as like like you're dead sort of thing like that's what Greedo is going to say to and Dave Filoni is just like no let's no. not do that yeah that's pretty dumb <laughs> it's pretty dumb but they used it in a really good way it was kind of a subtle McClunky good good um, whose turn is it I, are we done talking about the reactor room like the generator room? the reactor room there's not a whole lot else to say the maybe the the, the force field gates uh, really maybe cool. give them an extra nod that was phen- phenomenal uh, and the fact that Maul uh, has those incredible doors yeah. to, to use as his entry point for the entire scene uh, really adds to the the over the top aesthetic. But again, I come back to the practicality that makes these. And I know I, I just admitted yep. that there probably is some CGI in this sequence, but it, it's again, it's always most memorable and at its best when you can tell when you can look at it and you can tell that I could put my hands on that. And and that's been true of everything we've talked about so far, with the exception maybe of like the ocean on Camino. But like what's inside feels very lived in. Yeah, absolutely. So number ones, and my guess is mine is going to be a variation of yours. I could be wrong though. Okay. Uh, but my number one is actually the Mos Espa Grand Arena. Okay, nothing to uh, do with mine. Really? So yours is not Mos Eisley? No. But that is wow. a, that's definitely an honorable mention of mine because I mean- yeah, It, was one, the, it was the one that got yeah. kicked out of my list at the very end and I really expected you to have Mos Eisley. Yeah. But I chose Mos Espa, the Grand Arena, specifically because of like, yes, we get the pod race that occurs, which is so awesome. But my favorite part is the backstage yeah. where you have Qui-Gon negotiating with Watto and you have Anakin getting his pod ready. And you still have this wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> and you still have Jabba the Hutt, like, ringing things in as he worms his way out with Bib Fortuna. And it's everything that's so Star Wars-y. And yes, there's a lot of CGI. But I was, like, we were still raised kind of on the original six. And I still adore the pod race. And I think there are a ton of really cool background characters. There are some that don't work with CGI, but there are some that are still extremely cool. And the way that that entire set is done, I love the racetrack style of it. I was, um, it's not a fair thing to, to blame the last Jedi for the, the hopes it gave me, Mm. except for how, the sound of a race, the sound and look of a racetrack 
in Star Wars made me so convinced I was getting a pod race in the middle of The Last Jedi. And then it was a bunch of fat years. And I was like, no, I was yeah. so happy. I had like three seconds of incredible elatement. And then it just took it away. Uh, no. Not that movie's fault, but one of those things that I just, I want to see another pod race. And I love the Moss Esper Grand Arena because it's everything from Moss Eisley, but it's not as dark. It's brighter and it's, it, it's just, it's a little bit more fun, but it's a great callback. It, it's a more expanded way of the galaxy. Um, and also Qui-Gon and Watto have such a fun rapport that it makes for a bunch of great scenes sequentially um, with then the pod race happening as well. And so uh, that, that, that took the cake for me because Tatooine has such a, a clear uh, place in the way that you view Star Wars and, and, and how that fits for you. Uh, but there was something specific about the the Mos Esper Grand Arena that has just always really stuck with me since I was a little kid. They took such pains in those times to to convey to us that pod racing is like a very ubiquitous thing in the galaxy. And then, uh, like, you, you remember how awesome the N64 game was, Star Wars Pod Racing? That was like one of the best racing games. It was awesome. I love that. Uh, like, that's like Mario Kart level good. And and you're right. I love the I love the the garage sequence just as much, if not more than the suspense of the race itself. But then you're right. They just kind of missed a few opportunities to bring it back to us. And, and they can do that whenever they want. It'll never be Absolutely. out of place. Like it, it, it can be fit into just about anything um, because that's what sports are. <laughs> they just like fit into the world. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so interesting. I never would have, I never would have thought you would have selected this as your favorite. I mean, I I know that you love the pod race sequence, but that this mm. is your your favorite set piece ever. Uh, more interestingly, the fact that you chose this many prequel sets for your list in general, this many Phantom Menace sets as Seriously? well. Seriously, yeah. I mean, I, I also had Attack of the Clones in there as well, but and and, and I I didn't really and. I didn't really view necessarily uh, like creature design as a huge piece. I really did try to view it more as set. And I know inherently we've talked a little bit about creature design throughout this, but I viewed this a little bit more in my rankings as, as the set design itself. And I just feel it, it feels so inherently star Wars and I can't, I can imagine anything happening. Imagine the Moss Esper Grand Arena. Can you picture a crate dragon showing? Up? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Can you picture a giant fight with Tusken Raiders? Totally. totally. Yeah. Can you picture one of the most badass lightsaber fights ever? Yep. Totally. Could you picture another pod race? Totally. Could you picture a speeder coming by? Absolutely. It's just, it has, it's just, just a ubiquitously great Star Wars feel to it. Okay. You just said something that, that really like triggered a thought. Because I'm always thinking of different different ways we can color the backdrop of a great lightsaber duel. I used to think all the time it would be great to see one in the snow. And then we got uh, The Force Awakens. Then I thought it would be really great to see one in the rain. And we got that in The Rise of Skywalker. But I always thought like a rainy beach would be a really cool mm. place to see a, a lightsaber duel. Something they've never done is a lightsaber duel in front of a crowd. And that like in a gladiator kind of way. We've done gladiators in Attack of the Clones, but not with lightsabers. And that... Not against each other. Not against each other. That's what I mean. Like, I mean, like a duel between two people and people are like uh, cheering them on or maybe they're they're watching in horror or something. And that is an interesting prospect. Yeah, that would be really, really cool. Yeah. Um, I wasn't even I wasn't even thinking of it that way. I was thinking of it more of like an abandoned pot arena. But yeah, absolutely. 
have it as a bunch of people around. The Jedi is not intentionally having the crowd there. The Sith maybe intentionally had the crowd there. They just end up there. So the there, Jedi yeah. has to like monitor what they're doing and has a lot of more collateral damage to watch out for. Oh, true. You can yeah. create a really cool... Um, you can create something really interesting. You can create some anarchy when you have a crowd around. Uh, and I mean, we haven't had many eras where there's a lot of dueling opportunity. No. And so it'll be interesting when we get to more of those eras. My all-time favorite Star Wars set is much more simple than that. It's the Lars Homestead from A New Hope. This is... More than fair. It's not only classic and essential. I think it might be the great design feat of that original Star Wars movie because of its minimalism. Uh, you know, it's one thing to build these elaborate space stations or ships and flashing lights and starry vistas. Um, this is a complete redesign of the desolate living space of the unlikely heroic farm boy. Uh, this design uses massive space rather than like putting him in this little hut in the middle of nowhere. He's out on this big open plane to illustrate exactly how small and insular his world is. And there's a complete lack of color here, a lack of life and vibrance. There's no plant life. I think that's perfectly symbolic of Luke having not found his purpose or passion yet. And as soon as he does, he can leave there. Uh, and just on the look of this place, I think I love the trenches of, of their house. I love that he can like look down and, and Aunt Beru is down there. I like the, the weird igloo structure that is the house itself. Love I, the house. Obviously, I love the twin sons, if you consider that part of the set design. Uh, I, think, I think this whole set is a blank canvas on which a great adventure begins its first chapter. And, and uh, obviously, Star Wars gets busier after the Lars homestead, but it's a beautiful starting point. Oh, it's a beautiful starting point. And if you include the twin sons, then that's a little unfair. That's a Tatooine feature. Right. That's a plan. Then thing. it's yeah. then I almost have to agree with you completely and shuffle my whole list around. Um, but it's yeah, it's phenomenal. And I love that Ray goes back there. Yeah. I don't necessarily love the entirety of that scene, but I love the fact that the Lars homestead is caved in a little bit and that she like kind of sleds down. I think that is I think that's a wonderful part of it. And I think that it is it, it, we we see it over a long period of time. We see it as um, Klieg Lars's home and then down to Owen and then it being torched and being a place that no one has been to in a long time. Right. And it is the start of our journey and it is this kind of like just carved out area where you have a bunch of Star Wars iconography just being developed before our very eyes. Just the way that we, whether it's the blue milk or the doors, the doorways, uh, the tapestry on the ceiling, uh, it's there's so many different things. Yeah, it's it's really really special. And, and similarly, something that made my uh, my operators honor, my honorable mentions list is uh, Shmi Skywalker's house because it's kind of like the same thing, but it's in the city. And they did a good job yeah. of like making it seem like she lives like in kind of maybe assisted living housing or something, but they're. They're built of what I was talking about earlier, this like crude organic cement or whatever. Um, and it's maybe even a yeah, little bit- Stucco-ish. Yeah, kind of. It's maybe even like a little bit more architecturally um, complex than than Luke's first home is Anakin's first home. And I, I think that's a cool place. And obviously, yeah. most Eisley Cantina, a lot of Tatooine stuff is either on my list or just misses the cut because Tatooine's great. Yeah, and the, the most Eisley Cantina is a phenomenal one. It's a- 
I think the creatures play such a huge role there that I felt it was a little hard to to say the set itself was the the specific reason. I thought the same and thing. That, yep. Okay, good. The, I'm, the, I'm glad the crowd and the music. Way. It's those are not really the set, you know. Yeah. Um, let's see what else I had here. Um, Cloud City, in we, particular, like the the dining room when Vader appears. I think that's a really cool moment, and basically every, uh, was, everything Cloud City. Yeah, I was going to say the the carbon area downstairs and the hallways, uh, like the light up hallways. Yeah, uh, those are really cool. I think those are great uh, set design. Uh, Jabba's Palace. We've talked about it a lot lately, but, but you're right, it is. About that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, the other th couple I have here would be a little bit more obscure ones in the honorable mentions. Uh, Ray's home, the ATAT. I think that's a really fantastic. You're scene. so right. It's so brief, and I don't mean to say yeah. it's forgettable because it's not. But like, it, they move on so quickly from it that I didn't consider mm. it. And you're right. What a genius choice that was. I absolutely love everything yeah. about that. Where she plunks on the helmet, uh, her little kitchen, her uh, like her bedroom area. It's just it's a really cool choice. Uh, another one from uh, a couple more from the Last Jedi would be uh, Temple Island. So that would be the part on Octo, the, the island itself. Everything about it is super cool. I really quite like that. Uh, and Snoke's throne room, not as not as good as maybe Palpatine's, um, but great in its even more over the top presentation that it has. Yeah, uh, it's very cool. Uh, and then a couple ones from the the non Skywalker saga uh, would be the Scarif Citadel. That's totally. phenomenal as yep. well. That's a really cool set design. Uh, the Planet of Scarab is also cool, too. Um, from Mando, uh, I thought the city of Caladan was really great. Uh, in particular, um, the um, the Magistrate's Quarters area, how it was very um, kind of Kurosawa style. I thought that was really great. Right. Uh, Citadel Station, uh, in particular, and that's part of the Clone Wars. And so that's like this giant like, prison structure on kind of a... Uh, lava-ish planet and it's basically just this incredibly high security prison and it's a very cool uh, arc one of my favorites from the Clone Wars basically uh, any Im Imperial Death Star adjacent control bridge like that's that's a really cool set like and, and yeah. again it's kind of using a lot of the same fixtures that exist elsewhere but like really important to any Star Wars movie is where the bad guy the bad guys in suits are hanging out, right? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And uh, I mean, like even the the cafeteria. <laughs> yes, right. Um, but uh, and then the the only other two here I would have been the the world between worlds. Uh, that's a really cool, very out there rebels set design that they have. Uh, this is quite interesting. And then also uh, Yoda's observational pad on Kashyyyk. Oh, cool! Uh, that is a really cool kind of kind of set piece. Nice. All right, so I guess we can move on to the news. We'd love to hear anybody else's ideas. If we forgot like a really big one, please do let us know because obviously like there's so much great design in in the visuals of Star Wars. That's one of the things you love first. And so we'd love to hear other people's lists. What's going on in the world of Star Wars? Uh, not a ton. Uh, there's going to be a Skywalker kind of biography. Uh, it's called Skywalker, A Family at War. Uh, and so it'll focus on, at the very least, Anakin, Luke, and Leia, because uh, they're on the cover, or Vader, Luke, and Leia are. Um, but it may also, I guess, in that circumstance, talk about Shmi, Padme, uh, Ben, and or Rey as well. So um, that would make sense. And so that's kind of a cool approach and way of telling a story from a biographic standpoint yeah. as like war heroes and war villains. So 
it'll be interesting. I'll be curious to know if that's how that story is told or if it's uh, like how it uh, how it presents information in a new way, maybe. Right. Right. I mean, the Skywalker saga itself is kind of biographical. So like they would need to yeah. find a new perspective or just maybe tell the same story, but with different colors. Yeah, I think it would be maybe like a bit of a perspective shift of some sorts to be able to provide uh, a, a compelling tale. I read um, that uh, the the essential Skywalker Lego video game that's coming out is going to have 300 playable characters, including yep. Babu Frick. Babu Frick? Oh, hey, Babu! Uh, Yaddle, I believe, is also one of them as well. I mean, I guess um, if so you're going to have 300 playable, if you're going to have 300 playable characters, it might as well include Babu Frick. Well, that's the thing. I mean, 300 characters, that is a lot it's a big of number. Star Wars characters. Yeah. So that's going to include your favorite character, pretty much no matter what it is. Yeah. No matter who your favorite character is. Um, if your favorite character is K2SO, though, and you're hoping to see him in Andor, you're not going to in the first season. Yeah, I know. And that's a few question marks. So Tony Gilroy was brought in once again for this project to fix it the way that he was brought in to fix Rogue One. Um, and as a result of that, K2SO is no longer in the first season. However, we also don't know if there's necessarily going to be more than one season. And I don't know if Alan Tudyk does either because he didn't really seem to know a whole lot. He says, they're shooting it right now. I'm not in it. But if it stays on the air, stories keep getting told, I'll end up in there. I'm going to be in the show. It's just that the story that Tony is telling doesn't involve K2SO until later on. Can't be too specific, but I can definitely say that I'm not going to be in the first season. Unless he's lying, which is, I mean, he might be good at this. He's worked in nerd culture things for a long time. Yeah, but I actually, I don't think so in this case. I, I, I think that there is, um, I don't think that, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, to do it that way, I, I don't think. I don't. If if that's like that's no one is going like you. They already announced that he was going to be in the show, right? Like you don't say he's going to be in the show and then say he's not in the show and then put him in the show. Then you're literally just lying to fans. That would be like saying that would be like if you and McGregor says, "No, I'm not an Obi Wan." Right? What do you mean? You literally were announced and said you were an Obi Wan. Yeah, but I mean, he is—he isn't saying that he's not going to be in the show. He just thinks it'll probably come in a roundabout way. Yeah, but it's something that we have also heard nowhere else that there would be more than one season. We've heard so, nothing about the show at all. Well, we heard—we've heard some things, and we heard that it was going to be twelve episodes. So oh, that yeah. was some—that was like maybe it is going to be six episodes and then another six episodes. Maybe it's going to be two seasons. That would be a totally big surprise, yeah. but could maybe make sense. Or maybe it's going to be 12 episodes and season two will be 12 episodes and it's going to be 24 episodes in total. It's just the way it's been presented has not been so. And the way it was presented was that they had a kind of a clear story they were going to be telling and it was going to be wrapped up in one and K2SO was going to be involved and now he's not involved. And so it wouldn't surprise me if the story itself is different and that we know how K2SO will come into Cassian's life, but that just may not be the story that's being told because that was told in a comic. Right. And maybe they decide they don't want to interpret that comic in any way. Maybe Disney is like, no, you got to stick at least semi to the comic so that we don't piss off people. You have to like use some framework of it, the same way we use like the framework of Cobb Van. And maybe Tony Gilroy was like, okay, then don't give me the robot mm -hmm. because he also doesn't care about Star Wars either. Um, so it's it, it's something that is a 
is interesting, but it also tells me a little bit more about what the tone could be and that you're not going to have K2 because it'll be uh, maybe a little bit more serious. Yeah, maybe so. All right, what else? Um, only other thing would be Mando uh, season two was nominated in, or was said for AFI uh, top 10 TV shows of 2020. Yep. Uh, and uh, Pedro Pascal has also recently talked about some of the timelines of the show. He says, I'm not, uh, I am told what's happening, what the plan is, but I can't share it. Uh, there's expansions of this world uh, where there are so many unexpected surprises and timelines that are going to be dealt with. If the character were to cross over into these worlds, it would be utilized in a way that's meant to be expected, that isn't meant to be expected. I wouldn't want to spoil the surprise of whether or not characters from the show were already uh, known to be going to be crossing over. And so basically he's just saying, he's referring to the, the crossover events that will be occurring uh, and the fact that maybe multiple timelines could occur. Some people are interpreting this as that there's going to be a time jump, mm. um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that that's taking a leap. I think that that means that there could be a lot of flashbacks in the next season of Mando, that there could be a different timeline in Ahsoka, and maybe, maybe she met a younger Din or something like that, or oh. some other things like, like, who knows? But my guess, I, I don't, I saw somewhere that there was a clickbait title of somebody had an article. It was just like Mando season two, season three time jump. And they were referencing from this quote because he says unexpected surprises and timelines. And I'm thinking like, seriously, he's talking about crossover events and you took, you decided that that meant that there was going to be a time jump in season three of Mando. And so maybe there is, but also we did leave on a ridiculous cliffhanger. So my guess is there won't be, but there could be time jumps right. in the Filoni Favreau-verse, which includes Mando season three. And so that would be the way I would interpret that. I really think the Filoni Favreau-verse should include a series all about the culture of the Minox. <laughs> Oh man, that was a bummer. That was pissing me off. You got there. <laughs> Sorry about interrupting you on that one, though. You got there. You got to it in the end, and now I'll never forget. The yes, I will. And tomorrow, I will not remember what they're called anymore. Is no, that I've all? I've been that's... doing some some deep cut studying, and so I guess uh, I got to make sure I don't forget the easy ones. That's well. That's what I was trying to put you to the test. I was trying to. Put no, you on I the know. Spot. That's why it was like such a such a bad one. But uh, I uh, I definitely know that uh, I can't. Uh, it's it's crazy. I drink one glass of wine. Some people can work while they do that stuff. Nah, I can't. I'm done. I hear you. All right. Well, I want to wish a couple of happy birthdays. Uh, today, recording day. Um, so yesterday, if this is coming out on Wednesday, happy birthday uh, on January 26th to Mercedes Varnado, a.k.a. Sasha Banks. Uh, she's Casca Reeves. This is her first happy birthday on Recorder 66. Also, happy birthday next Wednesday, February 3rd to Warwick Davis. Um, nice. So obviously, he's a he's a staple. He's been back in... Was he in The Mandalorian at any point? Um, I don't believe so, but he's been in... So many a thing. Yeah, he's been around a bunch, right? He's definitely yeah, he's a... been in all of almost all of them. He was in Prize of Skywalker and a couple of roles and all the other things. And solo. He was he was in solo. Yeah, he was solo. Uh, so a couple roles in solo. We would love for you to send us your lists of your favorite uh scene pieces, set pieces in Star Wars. You can email us anytime about anything at all at uh recorder six six podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at recorder six six. As always, please rate and review on your preferred podcast app. And until we are together again. May the force be with you.